great to be with you again this morning looking at the book of Genesis. Um, I don't know if any of you saw this or not uh, this weekend. I did. I paid attention to it because it was fascinating to me. But Pope Francis was in Iraq. And, and this, is, I mean, I, this isn't any kind of statement on the Catholic Church or anything like that, so don't read too much into it. But, but fascinating to me to see uh, uh, Pope Francis go to Iraq and visit, essentially, Ur of the Chaldeans, which if you're paying attention in Genesis, is where Abraham came from. And they literally went to the, you know, the historical site where this place is, where, you know, him and his father-in-law and his, you know, family, they left and, and went up into Canaan. So this was fascinating to me. And then even more fascinating was, you know, I watched some of the mass that he led and, and, and all of those kinds of things. And, and that was, you know, that was interesting as well. But what was most fascinating to me was the meeting that he had with uh, this top Shiite cleric named Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani. Now, you probably have not, that name doesn't, you know, kind of flow off the tip of your tongue very easily. But, you know, as much as we recognize and understand who Pope Francis is in that part of the world, like, he's the guy, right? Even, even if you're, you know, not Shiite, if you're Sunni, everybody knows who's the, who this Muslim cleric is. And they met, one's, you know, 90 and the other's 94. And, and for me, it was like I was watching this and I was like, the, these are Abraham's two descendant lines, literally, you know, in, in terms of the religious world, you know, the Christian side of things and, and the Muslim side of things, because that's what we have in our passage today, the beginning of those two lines with um, the birth the story that we're going to read right now about Hagar and Ishmael. Ishmael becomes the father of essentially the Muslim nation because Hagar was an Egyptian slave, and that line broke away, and then later Isaac was born, and so each of them have 12 tribes that follow. Yes, both have 12 tribes. They're both mentioned in the Bible, and then those lines start. And then here you have these two men together for the first time ever. Fascinating to me. I don't, I don't know... Um, if, if you saw any of that, but it's, it's highly unique, and it's a historical thing. You just kind of need to pay attention to go, I wonder if anything will ever come of this, and what good? I have no idea, but I want to read this passage of Scripture for you with that backdrop that this is a real place in the world, and this happened, and, and understanding it a little wee bit in this interesting passage of Scripture, Genesis chapter 16. I'll read the whole thing. Uh, follow along, whatever, you know, if you have your Bible with you or a device or whatever, Follow along. Try not to, uh, this is what I would ask you, try not to uh, read too much into the story too quickly, make any judgments, you know, have, you know, just, just hear, this, hear the narrative, okay, as we read this together. So this is Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Ab- Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled 
from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar uh, near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord added, I will so increase your descendants, they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall call him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is, it is there still between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Quite the story. Um, let me, let me ask a couple, make a couple comments before we jump into the text and unpack it a little bit. First thing is this, um, I'd ask this as a question, why, why do we read Scripture to start with? Why do we read Scripture at all, read these stories? And I think there's a simple answer, you know, essentially it is to learn. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16, we've talked about this verse many times, it says that, you know, all Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, training, rebuking, correcting, righteous, all those kinds of things, so that the man of God, you know, may be able to do, do good in the world, you know, that, that kind of thing, the man of God. So we do it to learn, but, but learn what? We don't just do it to learn about, you know, systems and structures and, you know, how to follow commands and, you know, all of those. No, we learn it, we learn about God. The, the verse says, the man of God. To be a man of God. I remember not that long ago uh, at, a, at, a, at a party here in Mexico City that we went to uh, some other expats and met this guy, uh, and he was here in Mexico City working for Levi's, the, the you know, jeans. And I said, well, that's kind of cool. I said, I'm, you know, I'm wearing my 541s, and, he, and he's like, well, that's, that's great. I'm wearing my 501s, you know, and we started to talk about jeans, and and wouldn't it have been disappointing for me, though, if he went, yeah, you know, we've got this kind and that kind, and, you know, these are available in Mexico City, and, but I'm wearing Wranglers tonight. Like, wouldn't that have been disappointing? Someone who knows but hasn't put it on, so to speak. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to learn so that we can literally kind of put it on and become like God, like Jesus. That's what it's all about. We learn for that reason. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is I'm going to teach you a word that's a big word. I pro promise not to use it too much, but the word is anachronistic. And right in the middle of that word is the, is the root of this whole thing, chronos, which probably most of you will recognize is a Greek word, and you've seen it all over. It just means time. And this anachronism or anachronistic reality is when you take something from the future and apply it to the past that didn't exist yet. For instance... In the movie Forrest Gump, if some of you remember, he makes a comment near the end of the movie that he has, in 1975, invested in the Apple Corporation. And the inference is that he got in early and got rich. Well, 
Apple didn't start, you know, with their public offering until 1980. So that's an anachronism, you know, it didn't exist yet. And anachronistic thinking can lead to something called presentism. Okay, follow me here for a minute. Where we take everything from the present, the way we think about, you know, education and philosophy and, and science and medicine and all of those kinds of things, and we apply it anachronistically to the past when it didn't exist yet, and we make judgments about the past based on our enlightened reality in the present. And that kind of anachronistic or presentism type thinking applied to Scripture is dangerous. And I would advise us this morning that when we look at this passage, that we do not become anachronistically engaged in thinking about this passage. And the reason is this. Because if we do that, we may fail to learn or we might learn wrong. And we'll look at that in a little bit more depth in a few moments. The point, the point being is that there are things in this passage that we can judge from our modern, you know, enlightened view and miss the opportunity to do the, to do the primary learning about God, who God is, which is the primary way you should approach Scripture. Yes, there's lots we can learn here. You know, there, there is a, a, a lack of faith element in this that we could learn from, you know, um, Abraham and Sarah and how they approach this situation. There's even the issue of pride that comes up with Hagar, and, you know, she's this young uh, Egyptian potentially princess who came, you know, maybe as a gift from Pharaoh when they were, remember when they went to Egypt because of the famine and they left with all this, you know, the riches that he gave him because he was scared that, that he was going to get in trouble for being with his wife. Do you remember that story? This is probably, this is probably where she came from as a gift. So she might have even have been a princess and now she's pregnant and she's carrying the child of promise. Like, I'm sure that reality changed her point of view, and she probably became, you know, and it, it, it kind of says here in the text that full of pride. So we could talk about that and what pride does and brings. We could talk about, you know, we could talk about how to treat women, how to treat people who work for, we could talk about all kinds of things. Those are things that we could learn from this passage, and can and should. But the primary things are, are probably more critical to learn first, and then the other ones come out of that. So what, what do we learn when we look at this passage of Scripture? I, I, I'm just going to point out a few things this morning as we walk through this story. Um, one of the very first things is that we, we learn this, that God has to be or needs to be included in all our decisions. So Chapter 16 comes right after chapter 15. Isn't that profound how that works? But chapter 15 is this amazing passage of Scripture where there, there's what's called the covenant with Abraham where God comes to Abraham and it speaks to him about, you know, I'm going to give you a child. And, you know, and Abraham shares his fears like, how's this going to work? And I'm old and on and on and on. And God comes to Abraham in a dream and there's this covenant where there's animal sacrifice and all these kinds of things and it's powerful and there's this dialogue that goes back and forth between God and Abraham. Like, what about this and what about that? And God speaks and then they engage. And it seems to alleviate all his fears. That happens with us too when we get into this dialogue with God. But the thing that happens here at the beginning of chapter 16 is God's nowhere to be seen. This is a conversation about the child of promise that came from God and God isn't consulted. <laughs> Does that not seem a little bit odd. Now Sarai, it says, Abram's wife had borne him no children. So they come up, they hatch their own plan. And this is where some of this presentism or anachronistic thinking comes in. We look at this and go, 
wow, she like gave him another woman for his wife. How horrible is that? Like, who does that? You know, and why did they, you know, short circuit God's plan? And man, these were terrible people. Now, here's what you need to remember. A couple of things here. Having a lineage and a heritage and someone to pass on, you know, your, your, your estate, if you will, was a massive, massive, massive deal in that culture. It was no small thing. It was not like you could just go adopt someone. His, his, you know, his wealth would go to his, his, his you know, oldest slave would be the reality here. And there actually existed in law this reality of taking a second wife, as it were, um, to produce an heir, and that would be his offspring. You have to remember that this, in this time, and time frame and day and age, there, there were actually written law codes, one of them you may have heard of, called the Hammurabi, who, who he was the king of Babylon. This was written in law code that you could take a second wife to extend your family line. This was not unheard of. And in fact, later, we see this happen again. The 12 tribes, tribes of Israel, several of the children are the result of second marriages with handmaidens. This is the language that gets used. So the 12 tribes of Israel have this in their lineage. This is not so unusual. It might be a lack of faith. We might look at this now and go, you know, now we look at that and go, I, I don't know, this isn't, a, this isn't very good. This is, you know, really indentured slavery and, and, and it's almost sexual abuse. You probably could go there with this. But this was common. Doesn't necessarily mean it's right. I'm just saying it is what it is. So we have to be careful when we look at this and go, this is what we're supposed to learn from this text. I, I don't think that's the primary thing. So again, I'm not, not saying it's right. It's not right, but it is what was. And, and there is no indication in the passage that Sarah, or Sarai, would be the one to bear the child. That was never part of the promise. So in some ways, it's almost logical for, for, you know, for Abram to go, well, this is going to come from me. And so it's the fulfillment of the promise. So we have to be careful there. But All kinds of difficult things obviously develop from the fact that they didn't consult God. They didn't find out what the heart of God was. They didn't talk to God about their fears, their concerns, their, you know, their doubts, on and on. Abram did in chapter 15, and God dialogued with him. It it speaks to the importance of bringing God into the center of what's going on in your world. And being honest with them about doubts and fears and how's this going to work and God, you know, will you be there for me? Like, we have these things, and sometimes we just try and do it on our own, and the, dis- the results can be disastrous. So we need to learn that here about God. He needs to be included in all our decisions, all our realities, all the things that we are going through. Second thing I think it's helpful for us to see is, is God is a God full of mercy and compassion and care. Um, here's what we need to remember about this. Uh, she essentially is a slave, okay? You know, she, there's no way to sugarcoat this. She, she was a slave. And in a lot of ways, she was fulfilling duty. I don't imagine there was a lot of love going on there. Uh, she gets horribly mistreated, you know, and, and the language that's used here, it's, it, it, you could probably say that she was beaten. You know, that's, this mistreatment is more than just, you know, pushing her down. I mean, she was, she was abused. And so she leaves, and she's by the way that the text describes the direction she was headed, it's pretty obvious she was headed back to Egypt. Headed back to Egypt. And later we know that she gets uh, Ishmael, a wife, from Egypt. 
So she was headed back in that direction. But then the angel of the Lord finds her. I love that language, finds her. <laughs> like, I've been searching for you. It's like that tale from the garden, you know, where, where Adam and Eve are hiding and God, it's God's calling out, where are you? <laughs> I know exactly where you are. Uh, but this is the angel of the Lord finds her on the road and says, go back. This is strange to us. Like, what? Go back? Uh, but we don't hear about mistreatment after that. And she is pregnant with the child of promise. And so perhaps Abram came around and she was treated better. But the angel says, go back, submit, be humble, and I will take care of you. There's, there's an amazing thing that happens here. And there's a, a horrible mistranslation or, or not translation, but misinterpretation of what's taking place in the text. The angel says, and it's the angel of the Lord and speaks directly for God. So I have a, a, a strong bent towards this being like a pre, you know, in the flesh appearance of Jesus. That's my interpretation. But it's, you know, the angel of the Lord, and this is a debated thing, but he speaks and says, I will do this for you. So that's one of the strong reasons. That's in verse um, uh, verse 10, the angel added, I will increase your descendants. So if this wasn't God speaking directly, then uh, I'm not sure what it was. But so this is, I think, you know, uh, you know a, a, a early picture of Jesus coming in with his mercy and compassion. That's just my opinion. But regardless, it's, it's from God. But God is full of compassion and mercy and care. Uh, she was a slave. She had no choice. She was running away right now. Literally. Uh, and then there's this, there's this verse. It uh, turns into basically a poem or a song. Verse 12. He will be a wild donkey of a man. People will be against him. You know, he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. This is one of those anachronistic, you know, presentism type interpretations. We hear the word, see the words wild donkey, and we think, you know, arrogant, stubborn, uh, smelly, <laughs> on and on and on. Now, unfortunately... Really, really, really unfortunately, I think this passage of Scripture has been abused where people look at it, and, and it's been taught this way. This is the Islamic people. That's why there's so much trouble in the world because this was prophesied over them from the beginning, and they're wild donkeys of people, and their men are always fighting. And yet, oh, no. no, 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 this is not what's in this passage. You can't go that far with this interpretation. He will be a wild donkey of a man, speaks directly to freedom. To freedom. That song we were singing earlier, you know, you break my chains, you set me free. She is enslaved. And if you're a slave, I have no idea, I've never been a slave, but if you're a slave and someone comes along and says, I'm going to break your chains. Wild donkeys roamed in the desert. Think more of you know, beautiful wild mustangs. They are not the modern donkeys that we have now. These were beautiful creatures that roamed free. No one enslaved them. No one encumbered them. This is the promise that God is making to her because he knows what she needs. I will make your descendants great, plentiful, and free. And free. And history bears this out. The descendants that come after this, they, you know, they weren't enslaved by the Turks or the Assyrians. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable, really. And some of the translation here doesn't even align properly in our English Bible. It says, you know, he will live in hostility towards his brothers. That's probably not a good translation. It means probably away from. He's going to be free. And she takes this as something positive and willingly goes back. She doesn't interpret this as, oh, 
oh God, you know, this is going to be horrible. She reads it as something positive. And God knows what she needs, and she needs to hear this. She needs to hear that I have come to declare the year of the Lord's favor and, you know, the sight for the blind and set the prisoners and the captives free. Luke chapter 4, do those words sound familiar? It's Jesus. Freedom for the oppressed and the enslaved. God is full of compassion, mercy, and care. And he gives us exactly what he needs, what we need, because he knows what we need. Uh, Pope uh, Francis, when he spoke the other day, said this, it is not the rich and powerful who are blessed, rather those who show mercy to brothers and sisters. And I just thought, wow, you know, that's who God is. Shows us mercy, whether we deserve it or not. Whether we have been full of pride or not. It's amazing. This is who God is. The other thing I want us to see this morning is that connection with uh, God leads to the protection of God. This is a, a crazy thing that happens here where, you know, she's probably heard stories of who this God who speaks to Abraham and encountered Abraham and, you know, she came from Egypt. Who knows what she understood about the spiritual world? And all of a sudden, God's speaking to her. And it's like, whoa, Abraham, you know, your God, he sees me in my need. He speaks to me. I see him. He sees me. And that's what this all means here. And the place is called Be'er Lahai Ro'ai. I'm probably butchered that translation but it, or, or pronunciation. It means the God who lives sees me. And that promise still exists when, you know, Moses wrote this down probably 400 years later. The place was still there, you know, between Kadesh Barnea in the, in the desert of Canaan and then out towards on the road to Egypt. The place was still there 400 years later. And, and God says, because, you know, I have made this promise, you will be protected. And obviously she felt enough protection in the hand of God upon her that she's willing to go back. And of course, you know, this, this whole scene repeats itself in, uh, a little later, I think it's chapter 21, where, you know, the child is now growing and now Isaac's on the scene and there, there's this party for him where he's being weaned and he's, you know, a little older now. And, and uh, um, Sarah looks over and she sees Ishmael playing and, you know, apparently mocking. And, and she goes, this child is a threat a threat to my son's inheritance and there's no way he'll receive it. And off they go again and sends them out. And God does exactly the same thing. Meets them, I don't know, it says the angel of God meets them out in the desert. And to this day, Muslim women react, reenact this scene of searching for this well. It's something that happens as they, as they participate in the religious, religious life uh, in, in the Hajj when they go to um, Saudi Arabia for this. It's amazing. This thing gets reenacted over and over and over back and forth in the hills to go find this well, you know. This is remembered because God protected her. God protected her. Connection with God leads to the protection of God. Here's another fascinating thing about this situation. I don't know if you can remember, but I haven't found it, and I'm pretty sure it isn't there. No one else that I can think of in Scripture names God. Here's this Egyptian slave woman, you know, pregnant, hungry, thirsty, you know, in danger. And she goes, the living God sees me and I see him. Wow. 
That's who God is. That's who God is. He wants to protect those who draw near, and he will. The God who lives sees me. If some of these realities of who God is isn't bringing you hope in these, day and age, in these days that we live in right now, I, that's what I see in this passage first and foremost. There are other things, but I see this first and foremost. She names him. Therefore, I ask this question to wrap this up. What do we learn about God? We, we learn that we need to include God in all our decisions. Otherwise, things go sideways. God is full of mercy and compassion. And he reached out to this slave woman who was in danger, hurting, scared, wounded. And he met her needs. And then the connection that she found with God led to the protection that she so desperately needed. That's who God is. And that's who he wants to be for all of us. Let's pray.